You're listening to the Bonfire Podcast, fanning the flames of the gospel to the ends of the world. Come on, let's dive into the Word. Well, welcome to the Bonfire Podcast, everyone. We are glad that you are joining us for yet another episode. Uh, We want to encourage you to come in and stay a while and listen uh, to the Bonfire Podcast. And if you like what you hear, we would encourage you to subscribe and download. And if you haven't done that and you're a longtime listener, I would encourage you to go to that podcast application of your choice, whether it's Spotify, uh, Google uh, Play, uh, iTunes, wherever it may be, and go ahead and do- download our episodes, and you can do that right there on your mobile device. And then that way, wherever you go, uh, you can take these episodes with you if you're running for exercise. You can listen whether you're driving to work in the car. You can plug that into your your car and listen on your way to work. So makes us uh, portable. Take us with you uh, as you go um, is what I like to say there. So please download and subscribe. Also, I encourage you to uh, mosey over to our Facebook page. It's an opportunity for you to. Uh, follow and like what you see there. It uh, also gives you a great opportunity to, to take one of our episodes and to share that with your friends. And uh, we always ask uh, that you tell a friend, tell someone that you work with, tell someone in your family about the Bonfire Podcast. If you like it, please share with others so that they will know about the ministry and what we're doing here. Well, um, I do want to, to say this week, Dad, welcome back. Uh, we are Glad that you were back in the co-host chair. Yeah, I appreciate um, it. Yeah. And so you've been Thank through you. surgery and uh, yeah. now on the road to recovery. And so, uh, yeah, it's good good to have you back. It's good to be back, too. Yeah. It's been a rough couple of weeks, but uh, hey, I'm getting over it with God's help. I'm planning on preaching Sunday. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, it's been a couple weeks recovery, but the way we record, you only missed one episode. Right. And so uh, one, we want to say thank you to our listeners for uh, the prayers, uh, because we asked you you to pray and and, uh, thankfully um, surgery went well. And again, he's on the way to recovery. Also want to say a special thanks to uh, Jeremy Darby, who is our co-host fill in last week in that episode where we talked about nominal Christianity. If you hadn't had a chance to, to listen to that one, I encourage you to go back, listen to that episode and also go over to the Running with God podcast. That is Jeremy's podcast that he does um, each week. And so, um, again, glad glad to have you back here, Dad. Yeah, glad to be back. Well, on this episode, we are going to pick up and go back into our our study through the Book of Philippians. And uh, if you'll recall, we've entitled this "Rejoice Always." Um, is our series title here, and that's because one of the main themes that we get through the book of Philippians is about joy and rejoicing. In the first chapter, we saw um, we talked about Paul's love and joy that he had for the uh, Philippian church, and we also saw Paul's perspective, his positive perspective, on his problems. And so that was really the two major uh, portions of chapter one. We're now going to turn our attention to chapter two, and we'll, uh, in this episode, specifically be studying verses uh, one through 11. And so if you got your Bible, I would encourage you to open it up to the book of Philippians. We'll be again in chapter two, starting at verse one, and we're not going to delay today. We're just going to jump right in uh, to the scripture. To get us started off, I'm going to read just the first couple verses here uh, to, to start us off. And reading at verse one, it says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Um, and so this is where we're going to start our, our study today is, is looking at these verses. And in these verses, we're going to, to be talking about the main theme 
um, of humility. And uh, what we see here in these first couple verses of chapter 2 is, is kind of setting the stage uh, for what we're going to be talking about in the rest of these verses. And so, um, as you all know, we, we know that uh, the book of Philippians came about because Paul is in prison, and uh, he received a, a, a letter and uh, a financial contribution that was brought to him from Ephroditus. And so Ephroditus came to see him, and obviously he brought uh, with him good news that the church was concerned about Paul and mm-hmm. uh, was wishing him well. Uh, but what we believe is that he also gave him some bad news, um, and that there was maybe some divisions that were, were growing in the church, and there was some friction uh, that was happening uh, in the church family. And so uh, what we see here is Paul addressing that. And mm-hmm. uh, obviously Paul identifies that uh, the the problem uh, that was going on there could be solved by humility, and so that's what we're going to see in these verses. Um, again, there, there was this problem, and that's our first point is we're looking at the problem, and the problem was this friction. But apparently there was a double threat going on to the unity of the church. One, that there was false teachers, but then two, again, that there was this disagreement or this friction that was coming between the members of the church. Knowing this, Paul tells the Philippians to be like-minded. We see that there mm. um, in that first verse. And uh, to be like-minded, he was calling them to unity. He wanted them to, again, have one love, the same love, and to be of one accord. Unity is is a matter of personal responsibility, with each believer taking ownership of his or her own spirit and disposition. Uh, Paul went on to say that humility, again, would be the solution uh, to the problem that was coming up there in the church. Uh, again, a problem of unity. In the next verses, Paul will provide the principle of unity through humility. And that brings us to that next point, looking at the the principle. And so let's look at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, reading here, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in the lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Verse 4, Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And so, Dad, here um, I see that Paul is giving us kind of the basic principle of what humility involves. Right. And he says that there's three things that he's really calling the, the Philippians, and and obviously this letter is written to them, but it's also applicable to us. Right. And there's three things that we can do if we're looking to really uh, have unity and be humble um, and, and bring that unity through humility. The first one is that we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Now, the the term selfish ambition, we see that used also in the book of Galatians, and we know that that's a work of the flesh, and it has always been a source of division within the church, right? When Mm -hmm. you've got people who are just doing things because they're trying to get their own initiative pushed forward and they're not looking out for the the overall good of everyone else, that automatically is going to cause issues to creep up. Hey, that might have been part of the problem over in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, when he implored... Uh, Euodia and Sentache, he said of these two ladies, to be at the same mind in the Lord. I thought about that the other day. More than likely, this disagreement between these two women was not doctrinal, because if it was, Paul would use that as an opportunity to teach them doctrine sure. and to spell out uh, how to think about things. I think it had to do with preference. One was perhaps wanting to push her opinion over on the on the congregation, on, on an other group in the church. Uh, as a pastor, and I've been pastor now uh, full-time 
uh, what, for 36, going on 37 years. And I would say if I saw any, any problems in the church, most likely, most of the time, it was not doctrinal. It had to do with preference. Yeah. And so Paul's trying to straighten them out here. You, you've, got, you've got to have the right kind of mind, and you gotta, you've got to not be filled with selfish ambition and conceit, like you said. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that selfish ambition really goes along with what you're saying there, is it was maybe a preference issue of someone wanting to get their way, right. the way that they see things that should, should be done. Uh, definitely selfish um, ambition there. The other word that's used here is conceit, and the word conceit here is referring to empty glory. And so that gives um, reference to uh, doing uh, things maybe just for show, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and trying to do things more out of uh, ritual or uh, even trying to seek the glory uh, themselves. Um, it could be the problem that was going on with these two. Yeah. Uh, I remember one time there was a person in the church where I had served and they did such a wonderful job all the time, but they was always telling you what they did. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. So that that would be a good example of conceit, really trying to do something for empty glory, not to glorify God, but just to say, look yeah. at me, look what I'm doing. Yeah. Very possible that that's what was happening with the, the two uh, ladies that were mentioned there. The second thing that Paul uh, tells us that we should do is we should value others above ourselves, that we should put other people first. And that's something that, you know, we always say is something that's good to do, uh, but it's uh, really harder to do than it is to say, right? To really put others first. Right. And, and to talk about that. I've heard it said, uh, Matt, that others is the key word in the Christian vocabulary. And now we'll be talking about others. I know how we're going to be working through these yep. verses of Scripture in just a little bit. But, you know, one of my favorite books when I was a real young man was a book written by a professional football player. Now, professional football players today, they get a uh, some of them get a bad rap because there's some out there that's really uh, dedicated Christians and 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 have the you know served the community. Others maybe not so. But this p- professional football player that wrote the book was Gail Sayers. Now Gail Sayers got to be a professional football player. He was a black man and he was a great running back, perhaps one of the greatest running backs that's ever played the sport. And so he was playing NFL football at a time when the league was just being integrated. And and it was not customary for uh, blacks and whites to be uh, sharing rooms. I mean, they were integrated. This was this yep. is a big thing. And so he he had to share a room, I guess, in camp with Brian Piccolo. And Brian Piccolo d- developed cancer. And the the book is about uh, Gail's love for Brian Piccolo and how you know he looked aside. You know, the racial differences. He saw them. He saw Brian as uh, a fellow human being, uh, somebody created in God's image. And Brian Piccolo, likewise, saw Gail Sayers that way. And, of course, Gail Sayers was his friend, you know, saw him all the way through to his death. And the book that he wrote is entitled I Am Third. And so what the book was about, Gail Sayers, God is first in my life. That's what he was saying. Others are second. And I am third. Oh, that's really and, good. And that, that just made an indelible impression on my mind as a young man uh, that that's how we all are to live. Jesus, others, and you. Yeah. You know, that's real joy when you find yourself last. That's exactly right. That's where joy comes from. And 
yeah, I just uh, can't help but but think how different the world would be if people actually tried that, right? That's if right. If we actually adhere to that, even within the church, mm-hmm. um, if, if we actually said God's first place, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to put everyone else's uh, thoughts, wishes, and needs before mine, right? and then I put myself there in kind of that last or third place, mm-hmm. and man, this, it would be a different world. That's right. Different world that we're living in. Well, uh, kind of along those lines, Dad, the third thing Paul tells us to do is to express concern uh, for others' interest. And so uh, these are the three things uh, that we're told to do. When we value others and we express concern for their in, uh, interest, when that happens and believers care uh, for uh, one another, then the problem of, of disunity begins to fade away, right? right? When you're putting God first and others first, as you said there, Dad, unity is not going to be an issue. Right, mm-hmm. it's immediately going to be solved if that's uh, the the rules that we're playing by, or that's the principle that we're adhering to. But Dad, what I find interesting is that Paul just didn't he didn't stop there. He just he didn't say that. Well, here's the guiding principle. Here's what you need to do. Step one, two, three. He took it a step further, and he said, "Let me show you a portrait of humility." Mm-hmm. And so that's what I want us to look at next is the portrait of humility. And so we're going to be jumping into verses five through eleven now. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to read that whole section here um, as we get ready to jump into this section of Scripture. Starting at verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here we see, you know, Paul is saying, let me give you a portrait of what humility looks like. Well, who would make the best example or use case for humility? Well, none other than Christ himself, for he was the perfect portrait of humility. In these verses, Paul traced the steps of of Christ's humiliation, and we see that first that he emptied himself, laying aside his independence, um, and his own uh, attributes as God. And then second, he was uh, became fully human in a, in, a, in a human body, yet he was sinless. And then third, he used that body to be a servant. And then last, number four here, that he took on the body uh, and, and used it to, cr- to go to the cross and to willingly die for us. So, Dad, let's take a closer look at what this uh, portrait of Christ looks like. And as we look there, we can see and learn from Christ's life and his example that he lived for us that there's really four things that really stands out about Christ uh, being an example of humility. And the first one that I see is that he he thinks of others and not himself, or he thought of others and not himself. In these verses, we see in that first kind of uh, verse six there, we see that you know Jesus was was God. We know that Jesus is God. He's fully mm-hmm. God. He had all the the glory and the power and the praise of heaven. Yet, um, in this verse, in verse six, it says that he. He didn't consider it um, as something that he should selfishly hold on to, that he should hold on to to all of this glory. And so, in fact, he just freely gave it up and became uh, ultimately a servant for us. Jesus didn't think of himself highly. He thought of others before he thought of us. 
That's right. You know, there are two Greek words that can be translated form when we were reading and uh, being in the form of God. Now, the first word describes the outward form, that which changes. And the second word, which is morpha in the Greek, refers to the inner nature or character that does not change. The Greek word that Paul uses in verse 6 to depict Jesus existing in the form of God is morpha. This means he never changes. He has within him the unchanging nature and character of God. In saying this, Paul is declaring the absolute and complete deity of Jesus Christ. He even confirmed this in the next phrase in verse 6, where he declared that Jesus possessed equality with God. Now, Jesus is God. And as God, he did not need anything. He had all the glory and the praise of heaven. With the Father and the Spirit, he reigned over the universe. But verse 6 states an amazing fact. Jesus didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. Other translations make this more understandable. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says Jesus did not consider equality with God is something to be used for his advantage. The ESV says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, or another way of putting it, as something selfishly to be held on to. What we learn from this verse is that Jesus did not think of himself, like you said, Matt, he thought of others. His attitude was that of unselfish concern for others. And this is the mind of Christ. An attitude that says, I cannot keep my privileges for myself. I must use them for others. And to do this, I will gladly lay them aside and pay whatever price is necessary. A reporter was interviewing a successful job counselor who had placed hundreds of workers in their vocations quite happily. When asked the secret of his success, the man replied, Well, if you want to find out what a worker is really like, don't give him responsibilities. Give him privileges. Most people can handle responsibilities if you pay them enough, but it takes a real leader to handle privileges. A leader will use his privileges to help others and build the organization. A lesser man will use privileges to promote himself. Jesus used his heavenly privileges for the sake of others, for our sake. And like I mentioned to you earlier, well, I knew we'd get back to that. Others is the key word in the Christian vocabulary. Yeah, that's exactly right. And Dad, I, I, I want to go back and, and hit on something. I kind of skipped over it there in verse 5. Verse 5, it says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. And so again, Paul is telling us that the portrait here that I'm getting ready to give you is of Christ. And just as Christ in his mind, did these things, you also need to do that. And that's something very important, and I didn't mean to to glance over that, um, but that's something we need to think about here is the mind of Christ and us adopting the mind of Christ. That's right. And, you know, you mentioned the mind of Christ. He's Paul's not referring to Jesus' mental capacities. He was talking about Jesus' spirit, his demeanor, his attitude. Uh, The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this verse, make your own attitude that of Christ. Paul was not saying, be as smart as Jesus. Rather, he was saying, act like Jesus. Approach life with the same spirit, the same attitude, which Jesus approached life. And, you know, your attitude is important uh, because uh, outlook determines outcome. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. So we see here that uh, Jesus thought of others and not of himself. And that leads us to our our second uh, thing that we can learn from Jesus is that uh, he served. 
he served. And we see that um, as we look at verse 7. You know, not only did Jesus think of others, but again, he became a servant. In verse 7, it says that he made himself no reputation and took on the form of a bondservant. Um, and we know that when we look at the, the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and they give the, the recount the story of Christ, all throughout the Gospels, we see... Uh, Jesus being a servant. He was serving others. Um, he was all the time uh, healing, teaching, loving, con- uh, con- uh, consoling, uh, protecting um, other people. He was truly serving others, and his service ultimately took him all the way to the cross where he became you know, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Right. You know, you read verse 7 a while ago, uh, uh, one of my favorite translations of the Bible and, you know, I may, I may mention several translations, but I don't like all translations of the Bible. I'll let you know that. There's some that's altercations and not yep. translations. But now there's some that stand out better than the others, and I, I can learn from them. Uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates the first part of verse 7 to read of, of, of Jesus, but instead he emptied himself. And what did Jesus empty himself of? He did not empty himself of his deity, the word existed in verse 6 carries with it the idea of antecedent condition uh, projected into the present. Jesus was still divine after the incarnation. He still possessed deity. He did not empty himself of the possession of deity, but of the expression of deity. He surrendered his rights and prerogatives as God. I read a story one time told by an African missionary that illustrates the idea of Jesus emptying himself. And and let me uh, paraphrase it here. In this particular part of Africa, the chief is the strongest man in the village. As the chief, he also wears a very large headdress and ceremonial robes. One day, a man carrying water out of the shaft of a deep well fell and broke his leg and lay helpless at the bottom of the well. To get down to the bottom, one would have to climb down using the alternating slits that go all the way down the deep well and then climb back up. Because no one could carry the helpless man up like this, the chief was summoned. When he saw the plight of the man, he laid aside his headdress and his robe, climbed all the way to the bottom, put the injured man on himself, and brought him to safety. He did what no other man could do. That's what Jesus has done for us. He came to rescue us, and he laid aside his heavenly glory like the chief did with his headdress in order to save us. Now, in this story, did the chief cease being the chief? When he laid aside his headdress? Of course not. Did Jesus cease being God when he came to rescue us? Of course not. Getting back to verse 7, Paul tells us that Jesus emptied himself. He laid aside the independent use of his own attributes of God and took upon himself the form of a servant coming in the likeness of men. Now, this is that word morpha again. Jesus took upon himself the essential nature of a bondservant, a slave. When Jesus left heaven and came to this earth, he permanently became human in a sinless body and used that body to be a servant. And Jesus didn't just pretend to be a a servant. He was at the beck and call of all kinds of people. As you know, when you read the New Testament, uh, people came to him that were that were hungry, those that were afflicted with disease and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, demon possession. He helped them all. That's right, Dad. He helped them all. And as I said, uh, he, he served, and, and he served, and his service took him all the way to the cross where he became the perfect sacrifice 
for our sins. And that brings us to our third thing that we can learn from the portrait of Christ as a portrait of humility, and that was that he sacrificed. He sacrificed himself. We see in verse 8 of the scripture that Jesus was obedient uh, unto death, even death on the cross. Uh, He willingly endured pain and torment and ultimately laid down his life uh, for the sins of the world. You know, I've said it many times on this podcast, Dad, um, I kind of get uh, a little perturbed when people talk about Jesus was killed or murdered. And and certainly uh, he he, he was. He he was nailed to a cross. Mm -hmm. Um, But I always try to keep in mind that he did it willingly um, and that he could have stopped it. He could have he could have he didn't have to. Right. Um, you know, at any moment's time, he could have said, "Enough is enough. I'm done," and he could have called ten thousand angels and wiped everything away. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was obedient all the way through the torture, the pain, and laying his life down on the cross. You know, Dad, I find it uh, interesting that uh, many people are willing to serve others, but when you start saying that there's a price to be paid, the interest really begins to drop. Not many people are willing to put forth a sacrifice. Right. Um, I heard a story that was told. Um, of a missionary who was uh, in Brazil. He was at a festival in Brazil, and he was walking through the marketplace um, at this festival, and he ran across the booth, and the sign above the booth said, Cheap Crosses. And uh, as he looked at that sign, he thought, wow, you know, that's what a lot of Christians, many Christians, are looking for. They're looking for a cheap cross. Right. And, uh, but you know, Christ's uh, cross was anything but cheap. It was not cheap at all. It cost a lot, and mm-hmm. he sacrificed uh, in order to, to give us the gift of the cross, which is, of course, salvation. And so we shouldn't be looking for cheap crosses. And as I was thinking about that point, Dad, it kind of relates back to what we talked about last week when you were out, nominal Christianity, mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of one of the pathways of nominal Christianity is doing just the bare minimum, mm-hmm. right? You know, looking for the cheap cross, right. trying to take the easy way out. Yeah, you'll serve, but you won't sacrifice. Right. And the example that we see here from Christ is that we are to to sacrifice. We are to sacrifice ourselves for others, and that's a true picture of what it means to be humble and, and have humility. That's exactly right. The person with the attitude of Jesus does not avoid sacrifice. He lives for the glory of God and the good of others, and if paying a price will honor Christ— and help others, he's willing to do it. A church council was planning the annual Youth Sunday program, and one of the members suggested that the teenagers serve as ushers, lead in prayer, and bring special music. One of the teens stood up and said, Well, quite frankly, we're tired of being asked to do little things. We'd like to do something difficult this year, and maybe keep it going all year long. The kids have talked and prayed about this, and we'd like to work with our trustees in remodeling the old basement room so it can be used for a classroom. And we'd like to start visiting our elderly members each week and taking them cassettes of the services. And if it's okay, we'd like to have a weekly witness on Sunday afternoons in the park. We hope this is okay with you. He sat down, and the new youth pastor smiled to himself. He had privately challenged the teens to do something that would cost them and they enthusiastically responded to the challenge. He knew that sacrifice is necessary if there's going to be true growth and ministry. The test of whether you have the same attitude that Christ had is not just how much you're willing to take in terms of suffering, but how much we are willing to give in terms of sacrifice. And one pastor complained that his men were changing the words of the hymn from take my life and let it be 
to take my wife and let me be. (laughs) They were willing for others to make the sacrifices, but they were unwilling to sacrifice for others. Is it costing you anything to be a Christian? You know, I read something the other day. We would like to think oftentimes that we're making great, great sacrifices, but really, are we? David Livingston was a Scottish missionary and explorer who spent 33 years in the heart of Africa. He endured much suffering as he labored to spread the gospel and open the continent to missionaries. This godly missionary once remarked, People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. Livingston said, I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk. When we remember the great sacrifice which he, meaning Jesus, made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Mm, that's, That's a great illustration there. So we see that um, the portrait of Christ, that Christ thought of others. He put others before himself. Uh, he didn't think highly of himself. He, I mean, this was fully God. He, he, he was God. He had all the glory of heaven around him, but he didn't think much of that. And he would willingly laid it down so that he could come and be human and, and to ultimately uh, serve us. And right. so we see that he was a servant. And then ultimately, he he made a sacrifice, uh, the ultimate sacrifice, ultimate. laying down his life on a, a cruel cross. I, I can't imagine uh, just the pain and the torment and everything that he went through and endured uh, on that terrible death so that you and I could be free. And then uh, th- this brings us to our, our last point here of, of what we can get from the portrait of, of humility from, from Christ, and that is that he glorifies God or he glorified God. And so remember, Paul warned us against doing things out of selfish ambition and conceit and uh, conceit in verse three. Um, and so we're not supposed to be focused in on on glory for ourselves and and what we can do to get notoriety. Uh, just as an example, you said you know people that do a lot of work, but they're they're quick to tell you all the things that they do. Right. That's not the way it should be. And Jesus didn't do that. Uh, Jesus humbled himself before others, and God highly exalted him, and as a result, the exaltation uh, resulted in glory to God. Dad, one of the things I I love about this section of Scripture um, is where we see verse 9 here. It says, Therefore, uh, God also highly exalted him and and given him the name that is above all names, every name, Mm -hmm. and that one day the the name of Jesus every knee will bow, bow, and that is those in heaven and those on earth and those under earth. And so I want to just take just a second and talk about that. I don't have this in my notes, but it just hit me as I was reading through that, uh, the significance of it. You know, this clearly says that there's coming a day where uh, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to fest that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it says those who are in heaven, so those who are Christians who have died and and gone to heaven, those maybe who have been raptured, those who were on the earth, 
those who are, are still here, maybe at the mm-hmm. end of that tribulation period. And then it says those who are under there, representing those who are are in hell. Right. And so one day, every knee is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, I've ran into people who said, you know, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Well, um, I, I wish that you would change your opinion, but I know one day you're going to have to. That's right. Right. There's, there's going to be no atheism or no atheist on that day. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right. Um, just an amazing picture there we see in, in verse 9. But we, we really see that in verse 11 is where we get uh, kind of the, the, the gist of, of what Jesus did. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died for us. And yes, um, he was highly exalted, but his exaltation resulted in glory to God. Right. That was the whole purpose in his humiliation was to bring glory to God, uh, God the Father, not himself. And so likewise, uh, that's what we should do. That's what we should strive to do is not to do things out of, again, selfish ambition or uh, conceit, but strive in everything we do to do it to bring glory to God. Right. You know, our Lord's exaltation began with his resurrection. When men buried the body of Jesus, that was the last thing any human hands did to him. From that point on, it was God who worked. Men had done their worst to the Savior, but God exalted him and honored him. Men gave him names of ridicule, but the Father gave him a glorious name. Just as in his humiliation, he was given the name Jesus, in his exaltation, he is given the name Lord. He arose from the dead and returned in victory to heaven, ascending to the Father's throne. His exaltation included sovereign authority over all creatures in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And as you said, Matt, one of these days, everybody is going to bow and confess him as Lord. I've said this a number of times before. Uh, To bow before him now means salvation. To do so at the judgment means condemnation. That's an excellent point, Dad. Well, um, we're going to begin to, to wrap up the episode here, and and uh, we've been talking about humility, and uh, we've looked at uh, the picture of uh, of Christ or the portrait of Christ, and how uh, obviously the best example, uh, the the textbook example, if you will, uh, for what hu- humility looks like, and really we should strive to be like that. That's what Paul was telling us to do: is is to hey. Uh, we've got this disunity that's happening um, in the church, and so we need to to focus in on being humble. And here's how you can be humble: look to what Jesus uh, does. Dad, I think you got a good illustration that kind of drives that home. Yeah, that's right. Well, in 1896, Reverend Charles Sheldon he wrote a book entitled "In His Steps" with the subtitle "What Would Jesus Do." The book, which has become a classic in Christian literature, sold more than 30 million copies, ranking it as one of the best-selling books of all time. The story starts out with a minister, Reverend Henry Maxwell, preparing a sermon on 1 Peter 2.21, which says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Well, while studying for his sermon, a tramp, knocks on his door requesting assistance in finding employment. Reverend Maxwell apologetically turns him away. Two days later, Reverend Maxwell delivers his message to his congregation at the First Church of Raymond, and at its conclusion, the same tramp that came by his house unexpectedly appears and addresses the congregation. This man, Jack Manning, 
relates to the church how he lost his job as a printer and that his wife has recently died. He then boldly questions Maxwell's sermon on Christian discipleship by asking what it means to follow in the steps of Christ. His speech concludes when he faints and collapses in the aisle. After this, Reverend Maxwell takes the tramp to his home to convalesce, but the tramp dies a week later. In the story, this experience affects a great change in Maxwell. He realizes that Christian disciples should be willing to sacrifice and consecrate their lives. He invites members of his congregation to take a pledge for one year to ask the question, what would Jesus do when facing every decision in their individual lives? The remainder of the book depicts how those who chose to accept his invitation not only influenced the community of Raymond, but also began a movement that spread throughout the entire country. In the book, one of the people that takes the pledge is Rachel Winslow, a gifted singer who chooses to forego a promising career in order to consecrate her talent to God. In addition to singing in the First Church of Raymond, she volunteers to help Mr. and Mrs. Gray with tent revival meetings in the decayed rectangle district, and her music touches the hearts of those affected by life in the slums and saloons. In the process, she helps bring souls to Christ. Another person that the book tells about that takes the pledge is Edward Norman, the owner of Raymond's daily newspaper. After taking the pledge, he decides not to publish on Sundays and omits certain news items, such as price fights. Such actions lead to the losses in advertising revenue. However, the wealthy heiress, Virginia Page, who has also taken the pledge to do as Jesus would do, uses her inheritance to fund Norman's visionary venture and donates $500,000 to create a Christian daily. She also buys the Rectangle District and helps Rachel and Mr. and Mrs. Gray bring the people that live there to Christ. In a short period of time, God does, does so much in the town of Raymond through the original 50 people that accepted Reverend Maxwell's challenge that Christians in other cities hear about it and accept the challenge to ask, what would Jesus do before making any decisions? Today, is it really possible for a Christian to follow in Jesus' steps, to live as he lived, to love as he loved, to have the mind of Christ, to do as he did? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Right? Like Reverend Henry Maxwell challenged his congregation to ask before making a decision, what would Jesus do? The Apostle Paul as you've heard in our study today, challenges the Philippian Christians to have the mind of Christ. Now today, that's we want to close on this note to challenge you that are our listening audience to this podcast to have that mind of Christ, to have his attitude, his demeanor, his spirit. And as you know, Matt and I have already pointed out, when you do, you think of others, not yourself, you serve, you sacrifice, and you bring glory to God. Mm, that's that's very good. And, you know, Dad, uh, through uh, humbleness and humility, uh, you, you get back to joy. Right. And that's really the theme of, again, of Philippians is, is joy, is is when you're in that part where you're putting others before you and you're doing uh, the the things the way that Christ did, uh, WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? Right. Um, then that uh, brings about so much joy in your life. 
and it puts you in a different perspective, a different uh, place of mind, uh, the mind of Christ um, as you're as you're working uh, uh, through your daily life. And so I would encourage all of our listeners um, to study this word that we've been through today. You may need to go back and listen again and read some more uh, here in, in chapter two, but think about uh, what would Jesus do and approaching each and every day in that manner uh, to live a humble life and in doing so uh, receive the one of the greatest joys ever of, of being uh, in, in a Christian walk with Christ. That's exactly right. Dad, would you pray us out of here? Sure. Father in heaven, I want to thank you in Jesus' name that you give Matt and I the opportunity to uh, lay out for our listening audience uh, the words of the Apostle Paul that were given to him by God above. Uh, to encourage us to be like Jesus in our in our mind, to have the same fr- frame of mind that he had. Lord, we, we want to put others before we put ourselves. We want to serve you. We want to sacrifice, to sacrifice uh, for, for you to sacrifice for others. And God, our, our heart is to bring you glory. And I pray, Lord, that's true for everybody that listens today. And if not, I pray, Lord, that they will repent. They'll put you back on the front of their life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonefire Podcast. We encourage you to subscribe wherever you stream your podcast content. Also, be sure to rate us on iTunes and Facebook so that others will know about the podcast. If you have a question that you'd like to see us address on an episode, feel free to email us at bonefireministries at gmail.com.